But under the old covenant, God had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. We are the house of the living God, and the Lord Jesus is over it. He is the head of his church. Not some man, not some pastor, not some pope. It is the Lord Jesus who is over his church. He is over the house of God. Why? Because he purchased it with his own blood. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part Two. Over the last two days, Pastor Carl has addressed the reaction and the rebuke from the book of John, chapter six, verses 41 through 50. Today, he will conclude as we study the reaffirmation found in verse 50. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. So he describes himself as living bread, as the bread of life, different from the manna that Moses supplied in his day. He was claiming to be even greater. The bread which fell from heaven in Moses' day, they ate it, but those folks still died. But the bread that he gives, people will never die. Now, I may roll over someday, and you may bury me in the grave, but the real me will live forever, and someday God will give me a resurrected body. They ate that manna daily. They eventually died. But when you receive Jesus Christ, you will not die. You will live forever. And so he's going to draw a comparison and a contrast, and we'll see more of it next time, between the manna that God gave in Moses' day and the living bread that has come down from heaven. Now, when God gave the manna, he gave only a gift. But when Jesus came... He gave himself. Think this through. You know Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. God proved, he demonstrated, he showed how much he loved us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died instead of us. He died in place of us. He died for us. Now, you might ask the question, how is God the Father giving the Son a demonstration of his love? I remember hearing... Uh, Phil Donahue years ago, he had Jerry Falwell on his show, and he said, ah, that's no demonstration of love. If I took my son and nailed him to a cross, how does that prove that I love anyone? Well, it doesn't. Unless, unless God the Father and God the Son are so inseparable, equal in person, if there's one God manifest in three persons, then when the Father gave his Son, he gave of himself. And that is the message of the Bible. These cults who deny the deity of the Lord Jesus, they can in no way, shape, or form say that the giving of the Son is a demonstration of the Father's love unless God the Son is absolutely equal and inseparable with the Father. And so when he gave the manna, he gave a gift. But when he gave the Lord Jesus, he gave himself. There was no cost to God in sending the manna every day. But it cost God everything when he gave his son. Oh, they had to eat it every day. But the sinner, as we will see next time, who just once eats of his body and drinks of his blood, will instantly forever 
have new life. Now, the manna is used in the Bible as a type. Tupos is the Greek word. We get our word type. The word type is an image, a foreshadowing, an illustration of a spiritual reality. And so manna in Scripture is a picture of the Lord Jesus. The manna came down at night, in the dark of the night. The children of Israel go to bed. They wake up in the morning. And there it was every day, all over the ground. The Lord Jesus came during spiritual darkness. Oh, the manna of the Old Testament was small. It really pictured the humility of Christ. It was round, picturing his eternality. It was white, picturing his purity. It was flavored with oil, picturing his anointing. The psalmist said it was sweet to the taste, picturing what those experience who partake of him. Now, the manna met the needs of the people, and even so, the Lord Jesus will meet the deepest needs of your life. It was given to a rebellious people as Christ was given to us. The sinner had to stoop up, stoop down and pick it up. Even so, you must receive the Lord Jesus. You can either take him and appropriate him for yourself, or you can walk over him and not have him. Now, what do we mean? When we say eating the body and drinking the blood, because that's what the next six or seven verses are going to hammer. He's going to make some incredible statements. Well, we're just going to crack the door and we're just going to look at verse 51. You come back next time if you've not thought this through before, because this is important. There are some people who think that at the Lord's table, the substance is changed. It's called transubstantiation. Trans meaning change, that there's a change of substance, that the elements, the wafer and the juice, are literally changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And for some people, that's how you take Christ into yourself. Well, that's not what these verses are teaching. Look at verse 51. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of the bread, of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And so Jesus closes this part of the message by referring to his flesh, a word that he's going to use six more times as the dialogue concludes. Now, it's very important that we understand what he meant here when he referred to his flesh. When he speaks of eating, the, eating of this bread... And the bread that he gives is his flesh. He's not speaking of literally eating his flesh in that sense, or for that matter, the elements miraculously being transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ in eating in that sense. Just follow the verse. Look, if you will, uh, it says, the bread that I shall give. Would you underline those words, shall give? It's future. He's speaking prophetically here. He's looking ahead to the fact that he is going to die a voluntary, substitutionary death. Chapter 10, he will say, no one takes my life away from me. I give it. It is a voluntary death. I am going to give my life. And he is going to show that and prove that in John 18, that he could have ended the crucifixion ever before it started. And he will give it. For the life of the world. Do you see that? I'm going to give it for the life of the world. It is a substitutionary death. 
It is a vicarious death. He died voluntarily. He died vicariously. He took your place and the punishment that your sin deserves. Now understand, as you read the rest of the Bible very clearly, when the flesh of the Lord Jesus is described, it's described not in reference to the communion table, but in reference to his substitutionary sacrifice. Many passages we could look at, but let's turn to just one. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, would you? Hold your finger here in John 6 and go to Hebrews 10. If you're not familiar with the Bible, find Revelation in the back and then uh, scan back just a little bit and you'll come to the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews, among other things, is written to show the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus' death at Calvary and why his death on Calvary totally removed the Old Testament sacrificial system as a way in which to please God. He's writing to Hebrews, to Jewish Christians. And remember, these Jewish Christians, because they were receiving the Lord Jesus as their Savior, came under great persecution. So some of them reasoned, well, you know, if I confess Christ, I'm going to be ostracized from the community. I may go bankrupt economically. Some of them were going to be persecuted physically, though none at this point had shedded their blood, the writer says, but they were being persecuted, beaten up, tortured because they confessed Jesus as Lord. So some of them reasoned, well, I'll just go back. And I'll participate in the Jewish community and the temple worship system. After all, God instituted it. I know its meaning, but I'm going to go back and I'm going to participate in it. And then I'll be able to openly identify with the Jewish community and persecution won't be all that bad. So, of course, the writer shows, no, you cannot do that. It is wrong to do that because the old covenant system of giving sacrifices was just a picture and a foreshadowing of Christ. And for you to participate in that sacrificial work is basically to deny the completeness of what Jesus did. And so some of them were forsaking their assembling together. We quote that verse all the time in Hebrews 10, don't forsake your assembling together as is the habit of some. You know why they were forsaking their assembling? Not because they didn't want to get up on Sunday morning and go to church. It's because if they went to church and they identified themselves with believers, they were persecuted. A whole different reason than some of us. Look at verse 19. He says, in light of all this truth, since therefore, brethren, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now, I have a whole hour-long message just on these few verses, but let me hit on just a few of the highlights. Look again in verse 19. Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. When you have personally embraced the blood of Jesus, his work on Golgotha as a substitutionary work for you, you have confidence to approach Almighty God. There's no other way you can approach Him but by the blood of Jesus. Verse 20 adds, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us, how? Through the veil that is His flesh. Now, have you ever pondered the phrase and asked why is it that the writer of the Hebrews compares the veil in the temple 
to the flesh of the Lord Jesus. Now, some of you aren't sure what I'm speaking about. Maybe I can illustrate it. This is a picture of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was basically a portable worship center, a tent-like structure. It later, under Solomon, will become more permanent when he builds an actual temple. But both the temple and the tabernacle are designed on the same basis for the same reason. There's this outer court, and then in the tent itself, there are basically two rooms. You can see there's a front room and there's a back room. The front room, the first room, is called the holy place. Then between those two rooms is a veil, a curtain. And if you were to go underneath that curtain, you would come into the most holy place called the Holy of Holies. It was the most sacred spot on the face of the earth because it was there that God Almighty would appear in his Shekinah glory. Now, if you remember in that inner room against the back of the wall, there was an object known as the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was about the size of this pulpit turned sideways. And the high priest once a year would go in with the blood of an unblemished animal and he would place it on the top of the ark. The top of the ark was called the mercy seat. And he placed it between the cherubim. We sang this morning about cherubim and seraphim. If you were here in our Wednesday night series on holy angels, we learned that cherubim defend the holiness of God. Seraphim proclaim the holiness of God. And so between these wooden cherubim overlaid in gold... The blood of an unblemished animal was placed on the mercy seat, also called the propitiatory seat. In the New Testament, three times over, it's going to refer to the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. The word propitiation is a very important theological word that every Christian should know. It means to appease wrath. It means that God's wrath, God's anger is satisfied. And so when God gave his son on Golgotha, his wrath was appeased. He was propitiated. Why? Because he gave of himself in Christ to save us from his just and holy wrath, which means I have a whole new stature before God. God doesn't deal with me in anger. He doesn't judge me as a condemned sinner. He deals with me as a child of God. Well, once a year, the high priest would go into that section of the temple known as the Holy of Holies. It was a very sacred place. Just the high priest could go in. He'd go in for only a few minutes. He'd lift up the curtain. He'd go underneath it. Now, tradition tells us whether it's absolutely true, we don't know. But they would tie a rope around the man's leg so that if he did something wrong and he died, they'd pull him out on the rope. That's how special and how sacred this place was. Now, in the Ark of the Covenant, this piece of furniture, there were three objects. You can see them pictured there. There was the Ten Commandments, really the second set. Remember, Moses went up on the mountain. God gave them to him. He came down on the mountain, and people are basically breaking them all. So he smashes the Ten Commandments in righteous anger. He ultimately goes back up onto the mountain. By the finger of God, the Lord gives him a second set. He brings them down. And God says, I want those placed in the ark because they represent my holy law that man has fallen short of keeping. There was also the jar of manna in there, how God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. And it was a symbol of God's provision. Remember, they grumbled over the manna. And then there was the budded rod of Aaron. They said, who's Aaron? Who's Moses? Why are they hot shots? Why should they lead us? We ought to be able to be leaders as well. And so God took a dried, dead stick and it instantly 
instantly budded. Not only did it bud, there was flowers on it. Not only were there flowers on it, there was mature almond fruit on it. And so God supernaturally affirmed the leadership through Aaron and through Moses. And so once a year when the blood was placed on the top of the propitiatory seat and God looked down, he didn't see his commands that they had violated, his provision that they had rejected, his leadership that they had spurned. But all he saw was the blood and God was temporarily appeased. Why? Because he was looking down the corridors of time to the Lord Jesus, who had become our propitiatory sacrifice, the Lamb of God. God who would take away the sin of the world. Now, if you remember, when the Lord Jesus died there on Calvary, just before he died, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai, or tetelestai, depending on how you want to inflect it, it means paid in full. And when he said that, the Bible says the veil of the temple was torn in two, not from bottom to top, But from top to bottom, God tore it himself from heaven and God set a signal for all time that the old economy was over. A new and living way through the flesh of the Lord Jesus was inaugurated. When his body was torn, battered, bruised, and lacerated, he made access into the very holy presence of God. You see, that veil represented the flesh of Jesus Christ. Now, if you study the veil at all in the Old Testament, you'll remember there are three colors to the veil. Blue, purple, and scarlet. Blue, purple, and scarlet. Or blue, red, and... Uh, yeah, blue, blue uh, red, and, and purple, or scarlet. All right? Now, follow this. I'm all confused here. Blue, red, or scarlet, and purple. All right? Now, the blue was a symbol of the Lord's deity, of the sky, that he came from heaven that he is the Lord God himself. The red was a symbol of his humanity. Adam, the Hebrew literally means red. That's what the word Adam means. It was a picture of the humanity of the Messiah. But then if you take red and blue and you mix them together, you get purple. And it is a picture of the inseparable God-man, perfect Humanity, sinless humanity, inseparably combined with his eternal deity in one person, Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's not by accident that the writer of the Hebrews compares the veil to the flesh of the Lord Jesus. Think of it in this way. Did you know that the flesh of Jesus Christ potentially could have been an obstacle, just as the veil in the the tabernacle or temple was an obstacle for people to approach God? Because if the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ was not torn, if it were not lacerated, then we would have no access to the Father. You see, had he come and just lived a sinless life upon this earth and then ascended back to the Father, then his life would have done nothing but have condemned us. He would have been no Savior at all. An uncrucified Savior would not be a Savior at all. His flesh had to be lacerated. His blood had to flow. He had to die. And because he did, the veil was torn from top to bottom. And so the writer of the Hebrews will say, we have confidence to enter the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. Now let's imagine some Gentile, not an Israelite, but a Gentile, And he sees the tent, the tabernacle, out there in the wilderness. And he comes up to a Jewish man. He says, hey, I'd love to go in there. He says, oh, you you can't go in there. Only Jews can go in there. Are you a Jew? No, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Moabite. Then you can't go in. Well, what would be necessary for me to be able to go in? Well, the only thing I can think of is if you could somehow come back and be born again as a Jew, then you might be able to get in. He said, well, I'll tell you one thing. 
If I could go in there, I'd like to go into that, those places where those men with those suits, those clothes go on. Oh, you mean the priests? Yeah, the priests. Well, you couldn't, even if you were a Jew, possibly go into that place. Why not? Because not any Jew can go in. Only the priest can go in. And to be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. And only those Levites could go in. Well, if I were a priest... I'd go into that room I heard about. You know the one behind the curtain that everybody talks about? I'd go into that room. Oh, I'd love to go in there. Oh, he says. Even if you were just a priest, you couldn't go in there. Not any old priest can go in there. Only one priest can go in there. Just the high priest can go in there. Well, if I were the high priest, I'd go in there, and I'd go in every day, and I'd spend some time in there. It must be wonderful. Oh, he said. The high priest goes in just once a year. And then, just for a few minutes. But listen to what the writer of the Hebrew is saying. He's saying that if you've been saved, if you've trusted the one who had his flesh lacerated for you, you have fellowship, you have communion that is not momentarily, but potentially for the rest of your life by a new and living way, which is inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And in light of that statement, what concludes is logical. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. We have a high priest over the house of God. Please understand, this building is not the house of God. Don't call it the house of God. It's not the house of God. Now, it is in the sense that God gave it to the people of Community Bible Church for us to worship in. But under the old covenant, God had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. We are the house of the living God, and the Lord Jesus is over it. He is the head of his church. Not some man, not some pastor, not some pope. It is the Lord Jesus who is over his church. He is over the house of God. Why? Because he purchased it with his own blood. And so he's reminding us that we have a great privilege that none of them had. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance. God bless you, but some of you here this morning, the devil wreaks havoc on your life. He plays with you. He often drags up to the forefront of your mind what you were like before you got saved. Maybe even some of the great mistakes and sins you've committed since you've been saved. And you live by your feelings rather than by faith. And you think, oh, I can never approach God. Listen, had you lived a wonderful life, you couldn't approach God because it fell short of what God demands. It is only through the blood of this living covenant that we have access to the Father. And God says with a sense of confidence, with a sincere heart, he will say with boldness, we can approach our Father through the blood of a new covenant. And so take this concept taught repeatedly in the New Testament that the flesh of the Lord Jesus does not refer simply to eating his flesh, but the giving of his flesh on Golgotha. Take that back to John 6, verse 51, and we'll bring this in for a conclusion. He said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh he is looking at the impending sacrifice at Calvary. I shall give my flesh not in communion, but on a cross. He offered his unique life as a substitute. And the bread that I give is my flesh. And notice, I will give it for the whole world. It is unlimited. It is an unlimited atonement. He's already said, for God so loved the world. 
He's going to go on and say that the Lord Jesus will give his life for his sheep, for his friends. And you could make it more personal, I hope, where Paul says he loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know that? Have you ever eaten of the bread of life? Now, we will see next time that to eat of his body and drink of his blood is to identify yourself fully with his substitutionary death. You know, when we were kids, on Saturdays, I was in first grade, my brother was in second grade, just about nine and a half months apart. And on Saturday mornings, we'd walk about just 40 yards to our bus stop, right there next to our home. And we'd get on the bus all alone, no parents. You could do this back in the 60s. And we'd go all the way downtown and you know, if you got out of place in the bus, some parent would come up and say, what's the deal, pal? You know, they, there was a, a community, I suppose, back then where people cared. And we'd get off that bus and we'd walk almost a mile to the YMCA. And uh, we'd take the quarter that we had earned that week for, through the chores that my dad gave us. And we usually would go into this dime store right next to the Y and I'd get a couple candy bars, a Mounds Bar, an Almond Joy. I mean, 25 cents, you'd buy a couple candy bars. Well, when it was all over and after we swam, we'd come back and we'd always walk by this bakery. And we'd look through that window. Sometimes we'd press our nose up against the window and we'd see those donuts and those cookies and those cakes. Oh, they looked so good. But no matter how close we got, no matter how sweet they were, no matter how fresh they may have been, unless we took them into ourselves, it meant absolutely nothing. You know, we have a slogan in this country, you are what you eat. You've heard that? I want to tell you it's true spiritually. You are what you eat. And unless you personally appropriate the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior... You will have no life. And if you die in that state, you'll die eternally separated from Almighty God. He offers you life, real life, but it is only found in Him. Now, our Father, we thank You this morning that You would be so kind and merciful to send Your Holy Son to earth to die a substitutionary death Lord Jesus, how grateful we are that no one took your life, but you willingly gave it there on Golgotha. And I pray today for someone who is here, Father, who has never in simple faith called upon the Lord Jesus and believed the gospel. You said the gospel is the power of God to save. You said the gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and risen again. Friend, God paid your debt. He did it all. But you must come in faith unless you eat. It means nothing. You must, in simple faith like a child, ask the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Would you say in simple faith today, God, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself, but I thank you for your son, and I receive him today to be my Savior. Tell him, Lord Jesus, save me. I don't look for a sign. I don't look for a feeling. I just take you at your word, knowing that you cannot lie. And because you've saved me, I dedicate the rest of my life to you. I will publicly confess you before men. I'll be a part of your church. 
serving your people, living for you until you come again or take me home. Now, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his flesh, the veil rent there on Calvary. Thank you that we have a new and living way. Help us never to be enamored with the cheap substitutes of the world. Help us to look at the things above. Help us to focus on the Lord Jesus, to give ourselves fully and totally to him and the things that he has destined for us to do as a church. We ask it in his holy and mighty name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 018. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.